Psalm 1 has an interesting description of an individual that kind of sounds a little bit cool to me. Uh, It says that this person is like a tree planted beside streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and everything this person does prospers. And I, I admit that that sounds like a little bit of hyperbole to me. It's a little bit difficult for me to believe that uh, you could be an individual that whatever you do prospers. But let me fill in the gaps for a second. So this is Psalm 1. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way in sinners or sit uh, in the seat of mockers. But this person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked there like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous because... The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's interesting to me that the basic qualifier of a person who is like a tree planted beside streams of water, stable, bearing its fruit, productive, you know, of of good in the community, bearing good fruit, whatever they're putting their hand to prospers. The descriptor of that person is somebody who delights in the law. And yet, as Christians, there's a a general, uh, I guess you would say, bad view of the law. We are conditioned as Christians to kind of set up this law versus grace dichotomy and think in terms of the law was this horrible thing that God gave so that everyone could see what a crummy person they are, so everyone could be aware of their sin, it was a total failure. It, it was just, just complete garbage through and through. But ah, now that Jesus has come, there's grace. And there's a lot of misconceptions around the law. Things like, oh, people were supposed to be saved by keeping the law. That is wrong. People were um, somehow bound to the law in a way that it just sucked the life out of them and made them miserable. But thanks be to Christ who came and rescued us from the law. And yet scripture says that happy is the one who meditates on law day and night. That person is like a tree planted beside streams of water, bears its fruit in season, everything they do prospers. There's a huge disconnect between the testimony of scripture about the law, its purpose, its function, what it's about, Huge disconnect between the scriptural testimony about the law and the way we, in our normal Christian lives in America today, treat the law. And so we've been going through the book of Exodus, and in the first week, I I talked about some, you know, cool, nerdy stuff about uh, ancient Egypt and stuff that was going on with the Exodus, but one of the things that I mentioned was When we stop and think, what is the book of Exodus about? It's easy for us to say, oh, the book of Exodus is about the Exodus. But the Exodus is done and over with by chapter 15 of a 40-chapter book. And so what's the book actually about? The book as a whole 
is about going from a seemingly distant, absent God who has forgotten his people, that's the condition apparently at the beginning of the book, to by the end of the book, you have God living in a tent in the midst of his people. And there's two key elements, two main sections of the book of Exodus after the actual escape from Egypt. And those sections are the giving of the law, which we'll talk about today, and the tabernacle, which we'll talk about next week. So we've got to set the giving of the law in its context in order to begin to have some sense of what its purpose was. And that we, for that, we need to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to give a caveat uh, before I get too far into this. Um, this, this is a pet topic of mine. And so if I, if, uh, on occasion, get a little amped up and <laughs> seem uh, a little bit over the top, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it's a pet topic of mine um, because of my background. I, I grew up, uh, I grew up going to church. Um, I grew up actually going to Sunday school every week as a kid and um, learning, you know, about the Bible and that's all that stuff. And, and we, we were part of a, uh, of a church that basically was all New Testament. You know, and the, old, the only thing you dip into the Old Testament for were some stories. You know, oh, I'll pull a story out so I can tell you about it so that you can be a good kid or something, you know? And, and as I got older, uh, I, I felt like there was this huge, this huge gap in my understanding of who God was. And uh, I had the opportunity in 2003 to go to seminary. And what I found was when I was at seminary, I, I, I constantly gravitated to, towards Old Testament classes. And the reason is I had been a Christian basically since third grade. And I felt like I didn't know God. And I felt like I didn't know God because I had been given a very skewed, off-balance picture of him. And as I started to get into the Old Testament and really dive in and really study, uh, I, I, my faith was just like exploding as I saw who God is. And my entire view of scripture and how it works was shifted because I probably like uh, many of you, if, uh, if, if you're a believer, you you might have this view of scripture that the reason we have the Bible is so we can read it and like be told what to do. You know, like the whole purpose of scripture is to tell you how to live. Or as some people say, uh, the Bible is uh, your handbook for life. Or, uh, you know, the cheesy acronym Bible. Uh, basic instructions before leaving earth, which, you know, I used to say when I was a kid, which is just... <laughs> horrible. It's just <laughs> horrible on so many levels. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, I, I was part of that view. I was part of that view that basically said that the New Testament is all that matters because the Bible is our instructions for living life and the Old Testament instructions don't apply anymore. So, you know, it's, it's like two thirds of the Bible just were basically meaningless to me. And what had to shift was my entire view of scripture that said, my approach to scripture is to understand who this God is that I claim to serve. 
And if we can get our minds to begin to approach scripture, first and foremost, asking the question, who is God? Then all of a sudden there is tremendous, tremendous value in things like the law or regulations for constructing a tabernacle or things like this. So the, the context for the giving of the law is given in Exodus 19. And uh, the first thing to realize is that the people have already been saved from Egypt. That's super important. All right, so Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so Moses went back, summoned the leaders of the people, and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to say. In other words, Moses went down and he was like, hey, this is what God just said. What, what do you think? And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses took their answer back to God. So here's the scenario the people have been saved, they have been delivered from Egypt, and God is now pulling them together and saying, look, here's the deal. You're saved, it's done. You don't have to worry about being in slavery anymore. But if you want to be my people, my special people with a purpose and a, and a function in the world, then we can enter into a deal. The, uh, the translations often call it a covenant. Covenant is a word that means treaty, okay? God is saying, I'm gonna offer you a treaty, you know, a formalization of a relationship, and the idea is you will keep these terms of the treaty that I'm giving you, and, and you'll be my people, and as you keep these, this treaty, the terms of the treaty, you will represent me to the world, how do we know that he's saying this representational thing? Well, it has to do with the, the treasured possession line. So verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, keep my treaty, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, or some translations, uh, special treasure, or something like that. The, the type of treasure that is being talked about uh, you actually have different words for treasure in, in the ancient Near East. The type of treasure that is being talked about is the treasure that a king would set aside in order to impress foreign dignitaries. Think about it this way. Let's say that the president is going to host uh, a foreign dignitary from Russia. So the foreign dignitary from Russia shows up, and they're going to have this big meeting, and the the United States wants to show off how cool the United States is. So what do they do? They take the foreign dignitary, put them in a Ford Taurus, and drive them to McDonald's so they can see how amazing the United States is, right? 
That's not right, in case you were curious. That's, that's actually not right. No, you take them to the White House, you show them all this amazing stuff, you feed them this amazing meal with this ultra expensive wine, and, and you're showing off that the United States is awesome. In the ancient Near East, kings were masters at this. They would set up their palaces often with corridors that foreign dignitaries would have to walk through with uh, reliefs, carvings on the walls, showing the mighty victories of the king. This, so this foreign dignitary, you show up, you're at this palace, and you're like, wow, that's a pretty cool house. And then you start walking through the corridors, and you're looking at pictures on the walls of the king off doing military victories, off hunting lions from his chariot, all this kind of awesome stuff, and you walk through a room where treasure is laid out, where the whole point is as a dignitary, you're looking at it and going, holy cow, this guy is something else. So that by the time you actually get in the presence of the king, you are completely and totally overwhelmed by their majesty. That's special treasure. And what God is doing is he's showing up and he's saying, here's the deal. I want the world to know about me. My desire is to be in relationship with people. I'm going to pull you aside and you are going to be my special display treasure that shows off to the world how awesome I am. But the only way it works is if the people adequately represent who God is and what he cares about. And that's why you get the law. The law is a way of God saying to his people, okay, you want to enter into this deal, right? Because remember, Moses went and said, hey, guys, this is what God's offering. Do you want it or not? And the people at that point could have said, no, thanks. I mean, thank you for getting us out of Egypt, but we're, we're going to do our own thing now. But no, the people said, yeah, let's do it. Let's be God's people. Let's represent him. Let's be his special display treasure to the world. Let's be a kingdom of priests. In other words, a kingdom of people showing off who God is. The people say yes. And so God says, okay, here's my heart. Don't have other gods in front of me. If you're going to be my display treasure, if you're going to be declaring to the world how magnificent and awesome I am, how high I am above all the other gods, then you can't be worshiping other gods in front of me. That's the law. That's why they're given the law. So they can have a sense of God's heart, so that they can represent him to the world. Um, <laughs> it's, that's a pretty awesome thing. And somehow, somehow we as Christians, we, we've, we've gotten into this thing where the law is this horrible, ugly thing that doesn't apply to us anymore. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free from the law. And yet it was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 5, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. As a matter of fact, for the rest of time, not the slightest stroke of an individual letter will disappear from the law. The, the law 
stands, but we have this huge misunderstanding about the law because we think all it is is stuff that we're supposed to keep so we can be saved. The people were already saved. What the law is is a window into God's heart so that we can know him, so that we can represent him to the world. That's an awesome calling. And somehow in my Christian life as a kid growing up, the law was just a bunch of rules and regulations that were designed to like, I don't know, mess with my life or keep me from having fun or screw things up or just point out what a cruddy person I am because I'm no good at keeping all that stuff. Now that was my whole view of the law. And to this day, to this day, God is showing through the law, and it's not just the law in Exodus, but try reading the New Testament. There's plenty of law in the New Testament. There's plenty of commands in the New Testament. Those commands are given not so that it can somehow ruin us, or worse, not so that we can look like nerdy freaks in the world. No, those commands are given so that we might have life, might have it to the full, and might live out the amazing, compelling mission and vision of representing God in our world. And that call, that vision of, I will make you my people, I will bless you, you will represent me, that call is still just as alive and well today as it ever was. The problem is, the blessings don't always feel like blessings, right? I referenced the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus made the comment about fulfilling the law. Check out how he kicks off the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter five. <laughs> it's just, I should start a sermon like this sometime. Hey, y'all, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. You know, and he just, he goes through this list and you're like, oh, I'm not so sure I want blessing. <laughs> you know, blessed are you when you're persecuted and people say all kinds of bad things about you on account of Jesus. <laughs> but I imagine, I imagine if we started to uh, do a survey and those of you in the room who consider yourselves Christians or you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, all of you probably will have stories of someone you know who has suffered and walked with God through that suffering and the way that has inspired you and encouraged you in your own faith. And that's how God works. It's hard to understand. So... Um, he still operates this way. He still calls us into relationship with him, still desires to bless us so that we can be his representative in the world. And that was why he gave the law in the first place. Um, one of the things that can be uh, confusing about the law is this idea that God gave this law so that, you know, the people could be in right relationship with him. You know, that, that if, if you were able to keep the law fully, 
the Old Testament law, then you were like, you were, you were good to go. You were guaranteed salvation. Jesus didn't need to die for you. You had no need for God because you kept the law fully. Uh, listen to Philippians chapter three. This is Paul talking, and he's addressing the fact that there are people at the time who are what we call Judaizers. There are people who were saying that if you were going to become a Christian, you had to fully adopt Judaism, Old Testament law, all the regulations, and the, the sign, the main symbol for adopting the covenant was circumcision. So this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Further, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. That's a reference to the people who are demanding circumcision. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence for what? It's very easy to just flip this open and start reading and think, oh, you know, I need to not have confidence in my own flesh about getting this business deal. I have to rely on God or whatever it is. Yeah, okay, that might be true, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about salvation. He is talking about right standing with God. And what he's saying to the Philippians, to the people he cares about, he's writing a letter to them and saying, watch out for those people who are telling you that you have to get circumcised and adopt that whole system that they have developed. Those guys are dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. We, those who put faith in Christ, are actually the ones who are in right standing with God, and we put no confidence in the flesh to obtain that right standing with God. Do do you hear that? Because I guarantee you there are at least a few people in this room right now who are stressed stressed about what God thinks of you because you feel like you can't live up. Well, guess what? You can't live up. So stop trying to put confidence in the flesh. Your right standing with God is on the basis of faith and and his grace, period. So Paul is being very... uh, aggressive in his tone towards those who put confidence in the flesh. But then listen to what he says in verse four. Oh, by the way, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If, if anyone thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. In other words, Paul's about to throw down the gauntlet and he's gonna say, look, you think that you have good works and it all lined up for you such that you have confidence in your own works for your right standing with God? Let me show you what it looks like to have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, perfectly according to the tradition and the law. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he has the perfect lineage, the perfect pedigree. This, this misconception, by the way, is still in the church today. This idea that if you were born a Jew, you're automatically somehow saved and in right standing with God. That's junk. That's the kind of junk that Paul is confronting here. And he, and he lists it. I have the perfect pedigree to so-called be in right standing with God. Also, in regard to the law, he's a Pharisee. He's not just your average ho-hum keeper of the law. No, 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 no. He's, he's like those ultra, <laughs> it's like, no, I don't, I don't just jog on the weekends. I run ultra marathons. That's basically what he's saying by saying, in regards to keeping the law, I'm a Pharisee. I go above and beyond. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, get this, guys. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Faultless. And he's not just making that up. He's not exaggerating. What he is saying is, if you can get into right standing with God by keeping the law, he did it. But he goes on. But whatever was to my gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. The actual Greek word is poo. I consider them poo that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You cannot, you never could, it was never the plan, be made righteous by doing good works, by keeping the law. It never worked that way. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I, I'm not always enthusiastic about that part. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Look, the thing that I'm trying to get at, guys, is we as Christians reject the law and, and we, we don't even bother with it because it doesn't apply. Our faith is in Christ. We're New Testament believers. The New Testament is way more uh, practical we don't have to worry about the Old Testament. It's to our own detriment that we believe these things. Uh, my son has a friend, and they're, they're, it's very well-meaning, but it's typical of what I grew up in. You know, the New Testament is way more relevant. Let me take you back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that I referenced earlier. This is Matthew 5, verse 17. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, l listen to this line, those of you who think the Old Testament is irrelevant. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. 
Anyone who sets aside the commands that are in the law and teaches others to do the same, least in the kingdom. Jesus had a very high view of the law, which begs the question, are we supposed to start killing sheep on weekends? You know, let's build a fire pit outside, get some sheep, sprinkle blood, that kind of stuff. Um, the problem comes from our understanding of how law works. Uh, I, I want to try and not get overly technical. Uh, actually, everything in me wants to get totally technical. But, um, uh, but, but let, me, let me try and be a, as concise as I possibly can, okay? We have a tendency to view law as... Uh, Whatever the text says, that's the law that has to be directly applied in its exact wording, and we look for loopholes in that wording to kind of get around it. Um, law didn't work that way in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, and certainly not in ancient Israel. Law in ancient Israel was essentially the uh, case studies, you might say, or um, applications of some principle. So, in other words, you might have a law that says, this is from Deuteronomy 25, you might have a law that says, don't muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. That's an awesome law, right? <laughs> don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Woohoo! Well, I don't happen to own any oxen myself, so I'm good, right? I, I mean, if, if, if that line is the entire summation of the law and we just have to keep that word for word, I don't own any oxen, I don't have to worry about that law. But actually, that line is a case study or it's an application of some principle. What's the principle? What's the principle behind don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. In other words, what would compel somebody to say, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain? And when you work back to that principle, you'll probably come up with something along the lines of, you know, uh, uh, not, not preventing uh, someone from being supplied in their work, you know, or, you know, don't, pre don't prevent, uh, <laughs> don't prevent the Tootsie Roll workers from eating Tootsie Rolls while they're working in the factory, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's right. Okay, so that's the law, all right? And the way law in the Bible works is it gives you in a window into what God cares about. And what God cares about is that you not be so selfish that you're gonna keep all the profits for yourself, screw over your workers. That's what it's telling you God cares about. And guess what? That still applies. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions it twice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 9, I'm sorry, I forgot, uh, he said, he's talking about the fact that people didn't want to pay him for the work that he was doing. And that people demanded that he have a job as well as do all of his uh, church work, so to speak. 
right? And, and Paul quotes that ox law, and he says, hey, do you actually think that ox law was given because God cares so much about oxen? Don't be so stupid. That law, that's, sorry, that's Paul, not me. That law, <laughs> that law was given for people. And when you deny Christ's worker a livable wage, you are violating the very standards of God. Or again, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he quotes the same law. And it's in a passage where he's saying that the leaders of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose responsibilities are teaching and preaching. And guys, honor in the first century world meant money. Those whose responsibility is the mission of the gospel, especially those who preach and teach, are worth their wage. And then he quotes, don't muzzle an ox. And his whole point is, this, this view that we have in American Christianity today that a, a gospel worker should work for basically nothing so that we can know that their motivations are pure, that violates scripture, people. And it's in an ox law. That's also in Paul, so you should have been able to figure that one out. But, but my point is, it's, it's in an ox law. And the law... It's very difficult. I'll, I'll grant you that. It's very, I, look, PhD in Old Testament, okay? And I still read the law and I'm like, oh, what? I don't get that one. Okay? So I'm just being honest. It's, it's difficult. But sometimes it's, it's not. Like, a, like an ox law and, and, and taking care of people. You know, if if you're concerned about reading scripture only so that you know like what to do and what not to do, you know, the do's and don'ts. I'm gonna read the Bible. I have to make sure I apply it or I'm not a good Christian. Let me save you the trouble of reading the Bible, okay? Love God, love others. If you're absolutely concerned about getting it down, about making sure that you're applying it to your life, just... I'm just cutting out the middleman of the Bible for you. Love God, love others. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And yet, actually living that out, as anyone who tries knows, it's actually ridiculously difficult and we fail regularly. But if I could get, if I could get anything, if, if you take away anything, then please understand that for ancient Israel, the giving of the law was their identity. The giving of the law was God saying, I'm not gonna ditch you to figure it all out yourselves. I am going to put my heart on a tablet so that you can read it and see it and understand. I am going to tell you what I care about. And as we approach God's word and as we meditate on the law day and night, in theory, uh, the idea is ask yourself, 
What is God revealing about himself? What is he showing about his heart, his cares, his concerns? Because you have been invited into the mission of representing him to the world. Man, I did not get that when I was a kid. I just didn't. And I, and I tried. I mean, I, I, I'm not like the, the kid with the crazy, rebellious, whatever story or testimony. I'm like the lame, boring kid who in third grade said, hey, guys, I should get baptized because I know I'm going to believe this stuff anyway, so let's just get it over with. That's no joke. That's, I actually said that to my parents. You know, so, so the, I, I have the, the quintessential lame testimony uh, of, of growing up in the church and following God for years and years and years. And yet, there was this thing in me that, that said the Old Testament and the law, it was just this creepy stuff that, oh, praise Jesus, we don't have to try and follow or whatever. And, and I'm telling you, it's the heart of God And, and, and it's worth digging into. It's worth our time. Uh, I'll, I'll leave you with one example. One example. Um, this one's going to seem really strange. <laughs> That's okay. Here's a part of the law. If you buy a Hebrew servant, some translations will say slave, he's to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he'll go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he's to go free alone, but if he has a wife when he comes, she's to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man will go free. Let me read that last part again. If the master gives the slave a wife and she bears kids, only the slave goes free. Now, it's easy to look at that, and you, if you're only thinking in terms of application, well, you know, I don't have a Hebrew servant, so it doesn't apply to me. Or, if you have this skewed view of the law, well, that's Old Testament law, and Jesus, like, just did away with that, even though he explicitly said, I'm not doing away with it, uh, then, you know, I don't have to worry about it. Okay, that's the easy way to deal with it. But then, what if you approach it and say, hey, God is showing us his heart and what he cares about. And, oh, by the way, what he cares about is that if a slave master gives the slave a wife, the slave can go free, but the wife and kids belong to the slave master, and all of a sudden you're going, I'm not so sure I like God's heart. Okay, and this, this would be an example of where I say that oftentimes digging into the law and trying to see God's heart and his cares and his concerns is difficult. It's difficult. Part of the reason it's difficult is this law is from 3,000 years ago. It is from an entirely different culture, an entirely different set of norms. And yet, I've heard, I've heard pastors say that God condoned slavery and what they were referring to was things like American slavery. And, and everything in me is just like horrified at the level of misunderstanding it takes to say something like that. 
Because what we're talking about is from a very different time and place and culture. And, and the issue here is somebody somehow can't provide for their family. What do you do in the United States? Let's say that you can't provide for yourself or you can't provide for your family financially. You can't pay the bills. You can't get rent paid. What do you do? I'd recommend you get a job, for example. And that's basically what we're talking about here. But how do you get a job in the ancient Near East? There aren't jobs the way we have jobs today. This is an agrarian culture. In other words, this is a farming society. Then almost the entire culture makes their living by having their own individual farm. You maybe have a sheep or two that you get wool and milk from. You have a plot of land that you grow your crops. That is how you're provided for, and that is the norm. What do you do if a hailstorm comes and wipes out your crops for a year? Well, you find someone else, preferably a family member, who can give you a job. And that is what it's referring to when it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant. In other words, if you are a person with enough wealth that you can take this other person whose small individual family farm was wiped out and you can bring them over to your land and give them a job and provide for them. That's what's going on. When you begin to dig into this, what you see is that God is acknowledging that tragedies happen and he wants the tragedies to be taken care of in a humane way that does not render someone into eternal perpetual debt. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the issue of tough times hitting someone and then them ending up in basically lifelong debt, does that ever happen anymore? Does God's word have anything to say about it? Yeah, it does, but it says it in the example of a slave law and our ears are deaf to it because we don't realize that God is, is giving his heart of compassion. And what he's saying is, yes, give that person a job, help them out, give them the loan, so to speak, by having them work on your farm, but six years is the limit. And it doesn't matter what their debt was. And elsewhere in scripture, it talks about a year of Jubilee, the seventh year, and it's supposed to be every seven years. And that means that if somebody went into debt on year six and they had like three years worth of debt and you bail them out, you're only getting a year from them because God abhors perpetual debt in his people. He wants people to be cared for. But what about the part about a wife? If the master gives him a wife, it's very simple. In this culture, you, you had dowries. And so, and, and, and marriage was arranged, okay? Like, the, 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 that, that's all they knew, for the most part, was arranged marriage. So the idea was that if I had sons and I was gonna set up their marriage, then I would approach someone and say, hey, how about your daughter marries my son 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay you this dowry, this bride price. And the idea was that uh, your daughter is going to come over here and be part of my family estate, which means she's going to do stuff around here. So I'm essentially going to pay you for the work that she's going to do when she comes. And she will take part in the inheritance of my children. All the law is saying is... When the slave goes free after six years, if he can pay the dowry, then pay the dowry, and the woman and the children are free, free. If he can't pay the dowry, no problem. He is freestanding. She continues to work on the, the, the master's estate. It's not like God is splitting up families or whatever. This is all, these are all little agrarian, close-knit cultures. It's not, oh, the slave goes free, see ya, I'm splitting up the family, the wife stays here, slave, you're gone after six years. No, 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 they live together, they're together. It's a purely economic issue. Pay the bride price, and she goes and works, you know, in your household. Don't pay the bride price, and fine, she continues to work here, to pay off the bride price. It's not an issue of splitting up families. It's an issue of the fact that God cares about justice. He cares about alleviating perpetual debt. But he also cares that the poor don't somehow try and screw the system. And these things all have applications today. I hope that made even a little bit of sense. I'm sorry if I got a little too technical and a little uh, too whatever, too, too confusing. Uh, but again, the point that I'm trying to get at is, yeah, on the surface, it's often very difficult to understand what it is about God's heart that is being expressed. Um, but the law reveals God's heart, and God says, blessed is the one who meditates on it day and night. And, uh, yeah. And, um, um, I lost my train of thought calling up the band. My encouragement to you is, as you approach scripture, ask yourself, what what is this showing me about God, about who he is, about what he cares about? And I think, I think that if, if we can do that, that would go a long way. It's very easy to say, I just want to know Jesus. I don't really care about the Old Testament stuff. Try and remember this. Jesus declared that his mission was to reveal the Father. In the Old Testament, through and through, gives testimony to who the Father is, what he cares about, and how much he desires to have a relationship with us.